short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Anything you want to say at the beginning of this, buddy? Just uh, 33, trace, trace. That's probably not how you say it, but that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> no, we've been at this for two and a half hours. We've been at this for two and a half hours. This show will be less responsible than the last two you've just heard. <laughs> yeah. The last one, we played a whole bunch of French music clips at a how worse it can get. Good point. <clears throat> but let's try. So, it's still day two of the altar conference. Now they get to the subject of German reparations. <clears throat> so let's talk about reparations, they say. Big Joe turns to Ivan Maisky, the People's Deputy Commissar for Foreign Affairs, who's sitting on his left. And according to Maisky's diary, Stalin just says, report. <laughs> kind of cash. Just report. And now, Maisky, like, yeah, yeah. What the fuck? Is basically his response. He had no idea that he was going to be expected to give a report on this issue. Right. In fact, he didn't even expect to be in Yalta. Uh, it was a last minute trip. So he is taken very much by surprise. Now, when you work for Joe Stalin, <laughs> the last it, thing you want is to be surprised. Is it, isn't surprised or fearful your default position? Mm. Yeah, I guess it, you start there and yeah, it goes and then, downhill from there. And then you shit your pants. But yeah, no, but I imagine, I mean, he says report. And he, like you said, he thought he was just going to support... Um, uh, he said report. He said he thought he was just going to support um, Stalin as Stalin's doing all the talking. They haven't seen his final report. Molotov hasn't read it. Stalin hasn't read it. They don't know the details that are in it. And I would imagine saying something that pisses off or upsets Stalin is, you know, a really bad career move. But mm-hmm. he's been called on and now it's time for him to stand up or whatever he's got to do and give this report about reparations that nobody wants to talk about. And Stalin has no idea what he's really going to say. He's like, no, no, no. I'm the guy that sits next to the guy that right. hands you papers. That's like, my thing. I've got a briefcase with yeah. papers and I'm the guy that pulls the piece of paper out and hands it to Molotov, who then hands it to you just to, to, to back you up. And I, I don't talk. That's... <laughs> That's not my gig. I write things. You talk. Mm. But see, it was even now, worse you... than that because he didn't mm. show he didn't show up to the meeting from the first day. And Stalin is like, why weren't you there? Why weren't you at the first, first meeting? And he goes, he goes, oh, I wasn't invited. And, and now this is Stalin looking pissed off and looking him right in the eyes. You weren't notified? What do you mean you weren't notified? You're just undisciplined. You're taking liberties which is normally the last thing someone hears from Stalin. So this guy is scared shitless, but now everybody in the room is staring at him. Uh, And a bit of background on Maisky. He was born in Poland, moved to London in 1912, where he became friends with prominent socialists like George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells and Beatrice Webb. Nice. Nice. It was Webb, by the way, who coined the term collective bargaining. Mm. Um, he had a university education and spoke English and French. So that strikes you know, against him? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and another strike, he was originally a Menshevik. Strike? Um, didn't join the Bolsheviks until 1921. Revolution mm-hmm. was 1917, so very, very late to the fucking game there. <laughs> 
And he had a degree uh, in... Uh, I don't know. What I don't remember. What was his degree in? He had a degree in history from Moscow University. So again, like you were saying, he has a formal education. Mm. He has a degree. Not exactly the kind of guy that Stalin brings to a party. But uh, and he let, like you said, later, later on learned to speak French and English. But he's able to um, switch sides from the Mensheviks to the Bolsheviks, and and the Foreign Office uh, Molotov uses him for a while. So he's got his uses, but he is not a friend. He is not a close associate with Molotov or Stalin. From 1933 until nine, sorry, 1932 until 1943, he served as the official Soviet envoy to the United Kingdom. So he knew Winnie and Sir Anthony Eden pretty well. And consequently, he played a pretty important role in normalizing relations between the UK and the USSR in 1941. Mm -hmm. Kind of the go-to guy between the two uh, countries. In 1943, he gets recalled to Moscow where he's made the Deputy Commissar for Foreign Affairs. Now, as I said before, it wasn't a direct report to Stalin. In fact, there was even another guy in between him and Molotov <laughs> in the chain of command. Right. So he's a junior dude um, and didn't expect to be invited to Yalta. But a couple of weeks before Yalta, on January 20th, uh, Harriman, Avril Harriman, who... Uh, Maisky knew from his days in London, where, of course, Harriman was fucking his own daughter's flatmate, just to remind <laughs> you about that, Complex had, visited, had visited him in Moscow to get his thoughts on what they should do uh, with Germany after the war. Maisky told him what he thought and said, by the way, I've written about it in my memoirs, which have just been published. <laughs> Here's a copy. Here's a, Here's a copy, copy of my memoirs. And now, Harry would say, he, hey, yeah, what? No, I was just going to say, I mean, you work for Stalin and an American comes over and asks you questions about an upcoming meeting. Why in the hell do you go, oh, here, let me tell you all these things I think should happen. He should have, to me, I think he, he should have just shut up because the room is probably bugged. It might get back to Stalin. I just, I'm just confused by his willingness, his eagerness to talk to the American and give him his perspective. On, on what's going to happen well, I, uh, you know, Yalta. I, I don't think it was an, uh, an official meeting. I think they were just old friends from their London yeah. days. You know, they probably fucked um, underage girls together. <laughs> Good times. Good times. Right, righty, everyone, that the girl that Harriman was fucking was not only his own daughter's flatmate, but also the wife of Churchill's son. Damn. Anywho. That, that's conquest. Yeah, I think that's that would... a conquest right there. They were just old friends, I think. So anyway, Harriman says, look, yeah, give me a copy. Give me a copy for the president, and I'll give it to the president when I uh, see him at Malta. Then Maisky writes a report on this meeting to his superiors, going, oh, I better do the right thing. Better cross the T's, <laughs> dot the I's here. So I don't get shot in the face. And in that report, he said that Harriman had been very supportive of his idea of German reparation. So he gets invited invited to Yalta at the last minute. But again, he's written a report on what he thinks should be in the reparations. But to the best of his knowledge, Molotov and Stalin haven't even looked at it, let alone approved it. And now Stalin's just told him to get up and present it. Report. Yeah. Terrifying shit. If it was me, uh, I would have feigned a heart attack and then immediately <laughs> headed to a foreign country with no extradition oh treaty. My God. But that's just me. Maybe I would have gone, where's the nearest Ecuadorian embassy? I, I, <laughs> I got to go. I got to go. I need an Ecuadorian embassy. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so he, he, he whispers quietly to Stalin, but you have not seen my formula. <laughs> Stalin replies, that doesn't matter. Report. Just avoid touching on the issue of labor. <laughs> So uh, by Labour, he's talking about their plan to deport millions of German men and women after the war to the Soviet Union to work as forced labour, basically enslaving a sizable chunk of the German population because they knew they weren't going to have the cash. Right. We're going to take we're going to take all their machinery. 
We're going to take as much cash as we can, and then we'll just take the rest of it as as yeah. as slave labor, basically. Yeah, that sounds fair. So, something that wouldn't have been out of place in the days of Caesar and Alexander, quite exactly. frankly. Exactly. But they're not sure how this is going to play with the Anglo's, and they don't want word of this sneaking out to the Germans. So they want to keep it a little bit hush hush. And, and, and before Mansky uh, Mansky can say anything, then Molotov leans over to Stalin and he goes, uh, "Should a figure be given? Should we say five? Should we say ten? And Stalin's like, "Yes, give a figure, ten. So just like that, they decide because they've been batting around five billion, ten billion, fifteen billion. So just like that, at the very last second before he starts speaking, the the um, amount that they're going to ask for is ten billion dollars. And just to give everybody an idea of what's in the report that Stalin nor Molotov have seen yet, this is pretty much what it comes down to: seventy five percent of German industrial equipment, which is equally easily valued at ten billion dollars, is going to be shipped to the countries that have suffered but from German from the German war machine in the first two years. There's going to be reparation payments for 10 years. The Soviets are going to get somewhere between 75 and 80% of all dismantled equipment, but their goal was to get at least 65% of it. And like you were saying, uh, about 5 million German workers are going to be forced to the USSR to, uh, to work as free labor to make up for some of the costs. But when uh, Roosevelt um, begins with a question about manpower... Oh, yeah. He says, right, so how many, how, how many people do you want to deport? Stalin says, I, I don't want to talk about it. I'm not ready to talk about it yet. Now, as I said, they were probably concerned about how the Anglos were going to uh, think about this issue of slave labor. Yeah. What he didn't know was that just before the session... Harry Hopkins had said to Roosevelt that if the question came up, we should agree readily and not reluctantly. <laughs> and Roosevelt was on board. So they would have gone, yep, 10 million people. Five million, sure. no problem, sure. Yeah, whatever you want. You take it, yep. Harry Hopkins pretty much said, look, old man, I know you're losing it, but focus on this. When he asked for slave labor, he'll probably use a different term, just say yes, take what you need. It's not coming from us. So again, uh, FDR was going to use that as a, uh, an example of goodwill that he supports Stalin and that he understands what Russia has been through for the last couple of years. But Stalin, sensing that they wouldn't appreciate the idea of forcing people to another country to work, so he has that part of it dropped. They can get to that later. Does that, as an American, right, does that surprise or shock you that Roosevelt would have been willing to oh, say hell yes yeah. to slaves? Well, here's, here's my thing. I know there's roughly 20 million dead Soviet citizens right now after, after this war is, is coming to an end. But, I mean, they still got a couple million more. I just assumed that there would be tons of people out of work that the the Russians would take the money, take the reparations, buy them, you know, buy them food, buy them clothes, start to rebuild their houses and then put them to work and pay with it with the reparations. The idea of taking Germans, forcing them against the will to come and work for the Russians in their industries was very shocking to me, but probably for not reasons that you would expect. I would just think they would want to employ as many Soviet citizens as they possibly could. Yeah, but they're all dead, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of a, a bummer. That's kind of a downer. But yeah, the idea of, <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I would I would certainly hate to be the German that gets dragged into Russia considering how ugly and how mm. personal the war got. You've got to think that some of those five million ain't coming back, and it has nothing to do with being worked to death. And I'm kind of surprised that um, Stalin's bugs and spies didn't pick up on yeah. the U.S. position of this Good point. Uh, ahead of time. Um, certainly would have been an easy discussion. Anyway, Maisky says, will you permit me to speak directly in English? Stalin mm. says, please go ahead. <laughs> so um, Maisky gives his, gives his uh, presentation in his uh, heavily accented but fluent English. He proposes that the reparations should be allotted to individual countries based on two factors. The contribution that the country had made to the victory over Germany mm -hmm. and two, the damage it had sustained uh, as a result of the war. Uh, sounds fair. The Germans. Yeah, sounds reasonable, right? Yeah. 
So um, in his proposal, though, he was going for $5 billion in reparations. Joe had just bumped it up to ten. <laughs> so he, on the fly, Maisky, decides to also beef up his request for German equipment from 75% to 80%. Damn. We want 80% of German heavy industry sent to Russia. Um, he also stated that the reparations should amount to not less than $10 billion, right. which he said would only cover an insignificant portion of the direct damage suffered by the USSR as a result of the German aggression. Which tells um, you how much destruction was rained down. And during oh. all of this, Churchill is just staring at the man who is speaking. Yeah. Sorry. Now, when he said $10 billion, he said some of which might be exacted as labor, but then left it uh, deliberately vague. Good for him. But as you say, Winnie is giving him the stink eye during all of this. <laughs> Do you want to pick it up from there? Well, I just think it's interesting because Churchill just immediately jumps into it when he gets a chance. And he goes, $10 billion? That's a fucking fantasy. There is no way Germany could pay that back. Hell, the allies from World War I only got $1 billion from uh, Germany. And that was because the United States had loaned them most of that money. And the Britain itself, not only have we suffered with all the bombings and everything, but our war debt is $3 billion. So it would be nice if we could get some of the money back. I just don't see it. And here you're asking for ten, at least $10 billion. That is just not possible. It is not going to happen. So he does what he can to shut that down right away. But Stalin is not willing to give up. But interestingly, Stalin doesn't say anything. He, let, he lets Mainsky uh, refute Stalin. So these two are going to go at it for a couple of minutes. <clears throat> Churchill said if he could see any way in which our economy could be substantially benefited by reparations from Germany, he'd be very glad to follow it. But once bit, twice shy. Mm -hmm. And he felt great doubts on the matter. Yeah. He was concerned that the British would have to pick up the bill for saving the Germans from starvation <laughs> if the burden of the reparations was too great. Good point. He said, if you want a horse to pull your wagon, you have to give him some hay. Stalin re responded, care should be taken to see that the horse doesn't turn around and kick you. <laughs> and Churchill said, all right, bad metaphor. Sorry, uh, my bad. Maybe, maybe let, let's... Imagine a car. Yeah, if you want to drive a car, you have to supply it with gasoline. Stalin said, but the Germans aren't machines, they're people. Yeah. And he's and the Germans are like, right, uh, well, imagine that you've got a tomato. And, and, and so... It gets shut down again. He's putting up analogies and metaphors, and Stalin's just kicking holes Pur in them. Purposefully, and, um, yeah. You know what this reminded what, me of in the scene in uh, Rocky Four. When uh, Drago and Rocky are going at it and Rocky's getting his ass kicked and he tries to get out of the corner, Drago grabs him, throws him right back in the corner and just keeps on wailing on him. Whenever Churchill or FDR tries something, Stalin just puts him right back in their spot and just keeps wailing on them. And he's doing it absolutely brilliantly. And again, we have to be honest and say he had all their notes. He knew what they were going to say. So he was ready to counter a lot of the, a lot of the discussion for these these couple of days. Except the fact that the Americans were willing to agree to slave labor. Yeah, that, that makes it easier. That makes it easier for Stalin. Um, then Frankie steps in and again, for the third or fourth time at Yalta, supports the Soviet position. Yep. He says, look, America doesn't want any German capital or nah, equipment. We've nah. got 92% of the gold. Uh, <laughs> we're we, good. We, we, we're, we're making more shit than we can sell as it is. Really, we're yeah. good. But we also don't want the Germans to starve. But why should the Germans emerge from the war with a better standard of living than the Soviets? Absolutely. Now, um, Maisky also gets uh, in the fray against Winnie. He says, look, $10 billion, not not so big. Uh, only 10% of the U.S. budget for the fiscal year, to which the American Secretary of State, Stettinius, said, absolutely right. <laughs> Shut and up. Everyone looked at him like, Shut, where have you been? Is there anything you've said all day? 
Um, and I guess, look, it's not that much. And he also n- noted that the German military budget during the war was about $6 billion per year. Mm-hmm. And even Churchill said, yes, this is a very important consideration. <laughs> so anyway. No one's willing to Chir- back down. Churchill's opposed to unre- what he considers unrealistically large reparations. Then it's Big Joe's turn. He says he wants to limit the number of countries that get German reparations. Again, points out that France did fuck all. Um, that France actually furnished fewer divisions than e- either Yugoslavia or <sighs> Poland. Ooh. Oof. Ouch. So much for being a great power. <laughs> he, uh, and he said that the deciding factor for establishing reparations should be what your contribution was to the war effort. Churchill goes all fucking uh, marks on him (laughs) and says, to each according to his needs and from each according to his abilities. And Stalin is all like, oh, bitch, you did not just try and pull that one on me. Because socialist on me. Exactly. I'm the fucking communist here. Hello. Stalin was all like... He said, to each according to his desserts. And again, I mean, I'm the American here, but I'm going to say Germany got the shit kicked out of them by Soviet Russia. Soviet Russia is the one who's come back and broken their back. I mean, they they deserve, if you're going to give it to those who helped defeat the enemy, they're making a very real argument, even though you don't want to hear it because they're labeled as the bad guys, but... Stalin knows exactly what he's doing. It's a very realistic approach. And again, he wants a buffer zone between him and and Central Europe and Russia because he knows he knows this could easily happen again in a matter of years. And he wants to have a buffer zone, tear up someone else's territory. You're not going to tear up mine. I want something where I can fight on someone else's territory. And if it has to be Poland, fuck it, it's Poland. But this is not going to happen to my country again, not while I'm alive and not while I'm in charge. But he's getting concerned by the fact that the British are pushing back on the issue of reparations. Mm-hmm. He's starting to sense that uh, he may not get what he wants out of this. And this is a big deal, the reparations. It's a huge deal. He needs to rebuild his country. If he can't rebuild his country economically, quickly, he knows that that makes him weak. And he knows that the Americans are coming, going to come out of this stronger than ever. Right, and he's generally and he doesn't trust them. He doesn't trust means. the Americans either. Why should he? No, I mean, even though he and Roosevelt uh, have some sort of a yeah BFF thing going on, I mean, he understands that America, in principle, is going to want their own economic empire and mm-hmm. isn't going to want to um, allow the the Soviets to have their own economic empire. Later on that night, um, uh, in a conversation with his inner circle. Joe suggests that the Soviet share should be reduced to seven billion, and the Western allies could demand eight billion in reparations. He's trying to uh, be the good negotiator. He's going to bring right. down the amount of money that he's asking for. He, he he would rather get some than none. Doesn't want to antagonize the U.S. and the U.K. He wants them to agree to a deal, but. The reparations, like the whole issue of the occupation and the dismemberment, doesn't get decided and gets pushed to the foreign ministers for further discussion. And that, boom, is the end of day two. Yeah. I mean, I just can't imagine. So here's Stalin. He's he he's he can pretty much see the cards the other guys are playing, but he doesn't get a firm um, uh, a firm vote on uh, dismembering Germany. He gets an OK as far as in theory. He wants to get reparations. He gets. Uh, yes, well, let's have someone look at it, but he doesn't get a hard number. So for all of his advantages, it's not really going his way, Churchill certainly not getting his way, and then there's FDR over there. I mean, is he lucid? Is he not? We don't know. But amazingly, and you wouldn't expect this, Churchill is not getting what he wanted. It had to be, to me, I would think that it would have to be a very frustrating day for him, at least on some level, even though he's not going to show it or admit it. Mm-hmm. 
So, day three of the Yalta Conference. Day three is going to focus on the United Nations. And that's pretty much what FDR showed up for. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is FDR's big thing. He sees this, I think, in many ways as his great legacy in building a, a model for the post-war world that would ensure at least 50 years of peace. Mm-hmm. And as it's likely that the uh, Trump administration will dissolve the United Nations in the near future... Right. It's probably a good time for us to review the creation of it in some detail. Can can the United States kick out their headquarters from our shores? I wonder. Yeah, I, I think they probably can. But also, most of the funding for the United Nations uh, comes from America. Oh yeah, we can and just, yeah, uh, and America actually used that and plays use that uses that as a, a tactic. Oh, oh, you don't you you don't like uh, what we're doing? Well, uh, shit, we might just forget to give you any money this year, yeah. and uh, the water will get cut off. You're gonna have to have cold showers, Banky Moon. <laughs> so, um, Planned Parenthood defunded, Obamacare wipe it out, United Nations maybe defund it or just not participate anymore, and then it becomes even more hollow than it currently is now. Wow! But we can afford to build a wall. But we can afford to build a twelve to fifteen billion dollar wall. Welcome. Mm. I was going to say welcome to America, but actually that pretty much means don't come to America. <laughs> exactly. All right. So let's get into the United Nations. Uh, we probably won't get all through this in this episode, but we'll get we'll get started on it. Um, the idea for the United Nations uh, came from Frankie uh, Roosevelt. Uh, it was sort of. He, he realized that we needed some sort of international body for resolving conflicts. And the League of Nations, obviously set up after World War One by Woodrow Wilson, uh, had been a complete and colossal failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he didn't let that stop him. He wanted to build something better that would work. And the first outline for the UN was drafted by a guy called Sumner Wells, who was the uh, uh, U.S. Undersecretary of State during sort of the World War II period. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, Sumner Wells served as a page at Franklin and Eleanor's wedding in 1905 at the age of 12. What? And he goes on to write the first outline of the U.N. Um, <laughs> it's about who you know, he, people. It's about who yeah. you know. Uh, he was no relation to either Orson Welles or H.G. Wells. Good. Um, another fun fact, in the week following Kristallnacht in November 1938, when the British government stated that it would be willing to give up the major part of the quota of 65,000 British citizens that could emigrate to the United States and that Jews could take up their position instead... Wells opposed the idea, saying, I reminded the ambassador that the president stated there was no intention on the part of his government to increase the quota for German nationals. I added that it was my strong impression that the responsible leaders among American Jews would be the first to urge that no change in the present quota for German Jews be made. The influential Sam Rosenman, one of the responsible Jewish leaders, sent Roosevelt a memorandum telling him that an increase of quotas is wholly inadvisable. It will merely produce a Jewish problem in the countries increasing the quota. Wow. And how, I don't... I'm, how is having more Jews a problem unless you don't like Jews? Yeah. Okay, just checking. Just checking. Yeah. All right. Uh, um, You know, I don't know how well it's known uh, that the UK, the USA and Australia, among other countries, turned down the opportunity to allow German Jews to migrate to their countries uh, during World War II. Hmm. Or just before World War II, even. Right. Right. there was a thing called the Evian Conference. 
that was held in July 1938 at Evian-le-Bain in France right. to discuss the Jewish refugee problem. Um, it was convened by Roosevelt in an effort to deflect attention and criticism away from the American policy of not taking in more Jewish refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was like, look, uh, I'm going to convene a meeting so you guys can agree to take more Jews. <laughs> We're not going to take more Jews. I'm just letting you know that. Right. But We're I'm going to organize this. Yeah. But I will organize a conference in France. I will organize so... the hell out of it. Oh, fuck. Well, you've never seen something organized until I've organized it. <laughs> the oh. drapes alone will be impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So Hitler responded to the news of the conference by basically saying, hey, if you want them, you can have them. Yeah. He said, I can only hope and expect that the rest of the world, which has deep sympathy for these criminals, will at least be generous enough to convert this sympathy into practical aid. We, on our part, are ready to put all these criminals at the disposal of these countries for all I care, we'll even send them on luxury ships. Damn. See, he's misunderstood. He just wanted them out. No, not really. Now, 32 nations participated in the Evian conference. Right. They failed to come up with any agreement about accepting Jewish refugees fleeing Fuck. the Third Reich. Uh-huh. The United States sent no government official to the conference, mm-hmm. um, although they did agree that the quota that they already had in place for German and Austrian immigration could be made available to Jewish refugees, and they did, in fact, eventually exceed this quota from 30,000 to uh, 40,000 over that period. Right. Uh, During the same period, Britain accepted the same number of German Jews. Australia agreed to take 15,000 over three years. Mm. The Australian delegate at the uh, Evian conference, T.W. White, said, as we have no real racial problem, we are not desirous of importing one. Oh, tacky. We don't have a problem because we don't have a lot of Jews. No, no, Australia didn't have a racial problem, A, because the British wiped out most of the indigenous population when they arrived in their boats in 1778. Mm -hmm. And up until the 1970s, Australia had a white Australia policy. What? Which meant that both major political parties agreed that we didn't want to allow anyone who wasn't white to immigrate to Australia. No Asians... No darkies. Damn. Uh, even after World War II, when we accepted a bunch of Greek and Italian immigrants, people here went fucking nuts. We Because they weren't white enough right. to come to Australia. God, God. Um, it wasn't until the early 70s, under the Whitlam administration, that we finally got rid of the white Australia policy. We do have some politicians now that want to bring it back. But it, it's, it's fascinating to me, the whole Evian conference... When you look at the refugee problem that the world has today and the debates that are going on in all of our respective countries about whether or not we should bring in refugees, to remember that in, you know, just before World War II, we were also having these debates about Jewish refugees and what happened as a result. Um, I'm lucky that when my ancestors came to Australia in 1911 and 1966 from Poland, England and Scotland, they were all very, very white. They were pasty, right. Very pasty, pasty fucking white. (laughs) Otherwise, they wouldn't have been let in. Um, South Africa said they would take only those with close relatives already resident, which not surprising from South Africa. Um, Canada refused to make any commitment and only accepted a few refugees over the entire period. Wow. Hey, we don't like the Jews, eh? We don't want the Jews coming to Canada, eh? Might eat all the maple syrup. Uh, the yeah, only country yeah. at the conference who said, yep, fucking send them our way, was the Dominican Republic. They said they would take 100,000 refugees. Damn. I believe Costa Rica also said they would up their limits uh, uh, by a significant number as well. 
Um, Trujillo in the Dominican Republic said, yep, Jews, good. Send them out, send them to yeah. us. We need more Jews. We love the yeah. Jews. Send them to the Dom yeah. rep. Damn. But, of course, the conference ended up being a terrific propaganda tool for the Nazis because they could go, see, you don't want the yeah. fucking Jews either. We <laughs> so offered to give them to you. You right. didn't want them. On a luxury cruiser, uh, uh, cruise, yeah, and you still said no. So fuck and you. That, and that is why the gas chambers are known as the final solution. Because the first solution was to send them to other countries. And the yeah. other countries said no. So the final solution was the gas chambers. Yeah. Now the Think one about that, that. Yeah. Option That's one didn't work. Even though we tried, no, but I mean, I just want—I just want people to stop and think about that. In, in, as I said, in terms of the refugee crisis going on today, all of the hubbaloo that goes on, hullabaloo about accepting refugees, and I don't think people realise that we refused to accept re- refugees back then, and millions of them ended up dead. And the Germans cop the blame for that, and rightly so. But what is the ethical? responsibility of the countries that refuse to take them as refugees. Yeah, the Germans would have ended up killing a lot less if everybody had taken 50,000 or 100,000 or whatever. Um, yeah. Final comments on Sumner Wells. Uh, in September of 1940, Wells accompanied Roosevelt to a funeral in mm. Alabama. On the trip back... To Washington uh, on a train, Wells solicited sex from two African American train car porters, Pullman car porters. What? <clears throat> Male car porters. That's some service. Hey, uh, <laughs> I'm traveling with the president. I'm the Undersecretary of State. Uh, I how will about- pay you. Yeah. How about you guys put me in a spit? Uh, <laughs> no, no. Okay. The point is not that there's anything wrong with homosexuality, obviously. Um, but if someone comes up to me and says, I will give you $100 for whatever, I'll be like, thank you. Thank you for the offer. Thank you for finding me attractive enough to pay me. But no, thank you. So I, I wonder, I mean, maybe he could spot, you know, maybe his gaydar was working. I don't know. And he could spot the the potential yes coming from these men, and I really have no idea what I'm talking about because I didn't know any of this. <laughs> oh, my God. So Some news of this trip. gets out. Yeah. News of this gets out. He's, he resigns. Uh, his official reason for his re- resignation was because of his wife's poor health. I would imagine her emotional and mental health was suffering <laughs> quite a bit. She had to know. Come on. Women know. <sighs> Hold on, I have to shut the door. I think my family's back. All right. <clears throat> yeah, 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 yeah. I think his wife knows what's going on. Yeah, um, now he's unemployed. And wow. and he's replaced by Statinius, uh, yeah. who's the new Undersecretary of State. But... Um, one last thing on him, Winnie apparently made famous the response, no comment, uh, when asked questions. What do you think about this, Winnie? No comment. <laughs> I didn't and know he that. Said, he uh-huh. said he learned it from Sumner Wells. Ah. So there well, you go. Sumner Wells was a very well-traveled man. He'd been to a lot of places, to Russia. He was an ambassador to France and things like that. And he was there when the French were being defeated. So he had seen a lot. So it was unfortunate to lose someone of that that experience but yeah that considering the times yeah he had to go now i people it, would say to him people yeah. would say to him so uh wellsy apparently you like a dark spit no no one up one in the mouth one in the butt and on he a, would say on a train he would say no comment <laughs> no, no comment no Churchill was like i'm going to use that fucking bridge it fits it fits so much he said what you want, a, you want a dark spit? No, not that. The other thing. Well, now that you mention it, how about we try it at Yalta? Hey, Joe, Frankie, dark spit, what? I'll tell you. Let me move, remove my cigar first. Yeah. So, um, so I just think it's interesting that um, they'd already tried this with the, um, the League of Nations. It didn't really kind of work out for him. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> that they got the, okay, this is a do-over, make-over. 
A do-over, yeah. So Woodrow Wilson won the Nobel Prize in 1919 for creating the League of Nations, oh, but couldn't even convince U.S. Congress to ratify the Treaty of Versailles, which would have led automatically to American membership in the League. So Damn. America didn't even join the fucking League of Nations. How right. appalling is that? And it broke his heart. Broke his heart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and and... The League also had other problems. Um, didn't have any mechanism for representation of colonial peoples who were there. No, I don't know. Half the world's population yeah. were part of colonies. Right. They, didn't, they didn't get any say in shit. Um, and it also didn't have, well, apart from the US, the USSR, Germany and Japan weren't part of it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it was a dead duck. It, it did a few things. It, it negotiated a few things over its uh, 40-odd years it was there, but not even that, 20 years. Um, but it didn't have any way to enforce its mandate either. It didn't have uh, an army. It didn't have any um, ability to use or call into action a military. It relied on the great powers. Yeah. To enforce its decisions on their behalf, um, as as Mussolini once said, the league is very well when sparrows shout, but no good at all when eagles fall out. Oh, nice, and it rhymed. Yeah. But yeah, so so when Italy is um kicking the crap out of Abyssinia and North Africa, and they're just uh, the, the League of Nations couldn't do anything. Uh, Germany and Japan, who do eventually join it, uh, they leave it in 1933. It, Italy leaves it in 1937. But yeah, I mean, you had to pass everything unanimously. I mean, that is just so insane. There is no way that could possibly be a, an effective tool for for world peace or for at least uh, two two sides who are fighting each other to have a dialogue. I mean, you can't have this entity say everything has to be passed unanimously or it's not going to pass at all. That is just not a viable solution to try to make any progress. Yeah. Um, now, the idea of a community, uh, like an international community for peace, mm -hmm. was actually proposed as far back as 1795. Mm. Uh, in a book called Perpetual Peace, a philosophical sketch which outlined sort of an idea of a League of Nations to promote peace between the states. It was written by Immanuel Kant, and ah. I actually have this. Immanuel Kant was a real piss and was very rarely stable. I take her, I take was a boozy beggar if you think you under the table. David Hume could have consumed Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. And Wickenstein was a beery swine who's just a schlock to schlagel. There's nothing Nietzsche couldn't teach about the raising of the wrist. Socrates himself was permanently pissed. John Stuart Mill of his own free will on hot box and he was particularly ill. Later they say he could sing it away. After a whiskey every day, now his boss, Larry Stocks, was a bugger for the bottle. Ox was fond of his dram. And ready day car was a drunken fart, I drink, therefore I am. Yes, Socrates himself is particularly missed. A lovely little thing about a bugger when he's pissed. <laughs> there you go. Is that um, Monty Python? Oh yes. Okay. Yes. Thought I recognize your voice. I can't. I can't think of Kant without thinking of that. Yeah, Manuel Kant was a real pissant. Um, <clears throat> so the text of the Declaration of the United Nations was drafted by Churchill, uh, Roosevelt, and Roosevelt's aide Harry Hopkins when they met at the White House on the 29th of December 1941. Um, it incorporated some of the Soviet suggestions, but left no role for France. Now, the four policemen was the original idea that Roosevelt had. He thought that after the war, you should have the four major powers, the United States, the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, and China, that should basically make sure that there was peace in the world. Now, China seems like an odd inclusion at this stage, Ray. Yeah. Why China? Well, here's my thing, because FDR is like, oh, we're going to have regional powers to be able to keep people in line. Well, obviously, China and USSR are next to each other, but I, I still am trying to figure out why China, because it was still you know trying to figure itself out. The whole civil war is going on uh, around the time and after World War II. Why in the hell 
was China included in this? And did they have representatives there? I mean, that makes no sense to me. I believe China was added because Roosevelt thought the U.S. would end up controlling China Mm. and therefore it would actually be a U.S. proxy. Gotcha. Again, manipulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were heavily supporting the nationalist government. And, you know, as we've mentioned in their earlier economics episode, the whole open door policy that the U.S. had been pushing since the late 19th century was about being able to trade with China and have an influence in China. So he thought that China was going to end up on their side. Um, Obviously had no idea that China was going to have its own communist revolution uh, in the not-too-distant future. So that's China. Um, And he actually told uh, Anthony Eden... In any serious conflict of policy with Russia, China will undoubtedly line up on our side. Yeah. The uh, the Chinese and the United States do have a, a pretty good history, um, besides the times when the Americans wouldn't let any Chinese into the country. But yeah, we, we have felt for them, and we certainly supported them during the war, like you said, with the nationalists. So there was a lot of respect or a lot of admiration for China in a lot of the segments in the United States. So that part doesn't surprise me. But yeah, I guess they're thinking they'll pretty much vote any way we want them to. They're a huge, powerful, you know, they potentially could be a powerful country. Let's bring them in, and it's just another win for us. Now, Winnie, on the other hand, objected to the inclusion of China because he worried that the Americans were going to use China to undermine Britain's colonial holdings in Asia. Yeah, he's probably right. Yeah, exactly. So um, in October 1942, Winnie told Anthony Eden that China represented, and this is his quotes, a faggot vote on the side of the United States in any attempt to liquidate the British overseas empire, end quote. God damn. Okay, so when he said faggot, clearly that was a term meaning something other than what I think it means. Or am I wrong? Okay. Now, a faggot, the term faggot originally meant a a piece or, or a bundle of firewood. Okay. Bundle of firewood. Um, later on, it got meant to use civilians who were added to a military muster roll mm-hmm. to make up numbers rather than serve as soldiers. Ah, it's like okay. you would gather them like you would gather a bunch of firewood. Just get a whole bunch of people to, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> got, a, got a full battalion here. Yep, Bundle yep. women. Then later on uh, in England in the early 19th century, Uh, You had a situation where the right to vote, of course, was restricted to those who owned land, who had an interest in like an interest in um, a financial interest in uh, real estate. Mm -hmm. But a landowner could divide a single property into multiple units and transfer the title of each unit into the name of a separate person who could then vote but would usually vote according to the wishes of the landholder. Nice. And they were known as faggot voters. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and, and, yeah. and that was just a way of rigging the voting system. So it was only in the early 20th century that the term faggot was applied to homosexuals. Of course, Churchill's talking in the mid-20th century. But, <laughs> so but that's Churchill. Really which yeah. one he is. Uh, the word, the, the reason it, it got applied to homosexuals, they think, is it uh, may have come from a term for women, um, which uh, was like a contemptuous term for women that goes back to the 1590s, um, where they were like a bundle of sticks, something awkward to be carried about. So basically saying women were difficult and worthless, mm. like a bundle of sticks. Or there's a, a, a Yiddish word, fagele, which means homosexual or little bird, but was meant to, uh, was referenced to homosexual. So you may have ended up talking about homosexuals from one of those uh, sources. But anyway, so basically, U.S. wanted China because they thought they were going to be on their side. Churchill didn't like the idea of China because he thought they would be on America's side too and would help them break up the British Empire. Eden um, shared Churchill's view and really was sceptical that China, which was in the middle of a civil war at the time, would ever be a stable nation. Yeah. Um, Churchill said, uh, sorry, I mean, Roosevelt said to Churchill that uh, China, China might become a very useful power in the Far East to help 
police Japan. Mm. So he wanted to get them on his side. Okay. Okay, let me continue. All right, four policemen. So the whole four policemen model that uh, Frankie had put forward was sort of criticised around the world, particularly by progressive thinkers. They thought mm. power should be more evenly distributed amongst the member nations. Right. He had this idea that the four policemen, which would be part of the Security Council, would be the, the people that got to make or break it. They, the, the, the progressive thinkers around the world from the get-go were concerned that it would lead to a quadruple alliance that you would have these four major powers that could do whatever they wanted. They could shit all over the smaller <laughs> countries in the world. And as it turns out, of course, the, the whole four policemen model or the five policemen as it ended up with France eventually turned out to be the United Nations greatest weakness. Right. Uh, I've got a quote from the former undersecretary general of the UN, Sir Brian Urquhart. Eventually this proved to be both the potential strength and the actual weakness of the future UN, an organisation theoretically based on a concert of great powers whose own mutual hostility, as it turned out, was itself the greatest potential threat to world peace. So uh, Roosevelt first coined the term United Nations when he was describing the Allied Germanys when he met with Molotov in 1942, he said that he visualized the enforced disarmament of our enemies and indeed some of our friends after the war. Mm. That he thought that the United States, England, Russia and perhaps China should police the world and enforce disarmament by inspection. The president said that he visualized Germany, Italy, Japan, France, Czechoslovakia, Romania and other nations would not be permitted to have military forces. He stated that other nations might join the first four mentioned after experience proved they could be trusted. Right. So interesting idea here that his original idea was to demilitarize the entire world oh, except for the big four. Of course, as we know, what ended up happening is we militarized the fuck out of the entire world. <laughs> except Germany and Japan. Um, and uh, so uh, Roosevelt's original idea for the UN, uh, unfortunately, was flawed from the get-go. You know, it probably didn't help that he died before it even got off the ground. Yeah, I wonder if um, he would have been able to, because he was so popular, if he had lived longer. Uh, it's almost like the Obamacare. Okay, let's make it and then let's fix it. Let's improve it. Let's change it or whatever, which I don't think really had a chance uh, that Obamacare that had that had that chance. But yeah, so many things could have been different if he could have lived another, you know, three and a half years or whatever. It'd be very interesting to see what would have happened in the late 40s and early 50s if he had been able to fulfill his fourth and probably final term. Yeah, no, I really think it would have been a very different world. Yeah. Uh, and it would have been a very different world if he hadn't have um, chosen Truman as his yeah. uh, vice president just before he died. Yeah. So on New Year's Day 1942, Roosevelt, Churchill, Litvinov from the Soviets and TV Sung of China signed the short document which became known as the United Nations Declaration and the next day, 22 other countries added their signatures. Now, the nuts and bolts of how it was all going to work, though, wasn't worked out until they all met at Dumbarton Oaks in 1944. And then they all met again in April 1945 to hash it out further. And that resulted in what we now know as the United Nations Charter. Mm. The conference in 1945, where they wrote that document was chaired by Alger Hiss as we've mentioned before who turned out to be a Soviet spy but that's neither here nor there right so the big differences I think between the UN and the League of Nations is that the UN has a peacekeeping force mm -hmm. it has the Security Council which at least in theory technically can send in a military 
into countries to prevent conflicts. Right. However, as we all know, the founders of the UN set it up in a way that the four policemen, which became the five policemen with France, a.k.a. the permanent members of the Security Council, a.k.a. the P5, um, have a veto on all Security Council actions. And as it turns out, it makes the Security Council pretty much useless in anything that involves one of the P5 or any country that is one of the is involves one of the interests of the P5, which is pretty much the entire fucking planet. So yeah. By the way, veto Latin for I forbid. Mm, I did not know that. Cool. You didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Now I do. Now, the veto is interesting. That the genesis of the veto was both Stalin and Churchill demanded the veto. Yeah, I mean, how could you, how could you, I mean, these two guys are not going to turn over power. They're not going to create something more powerful than themselves. They're going to want a way to be able to shut it down. So I, I, I'm not sure how Churchill felt about that, but I could easily see these two going, no, we have to have the ability to stop something or pull a plug because what's the point of being the most powerful if you have to put up with other people? Other countries. That's basically my theory on just day to day, man. What's the what's the point of being the most powerful if I have to deal with other people? Do all these shits. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to all these idiots. Um, now, yeah, Big Joe feared that the capitalist countries would gang up on the USSR. And so mm-hmm. he wanted the veto to be able to say, no, can't do that. Go away. Um And Churchill had similar fears, as we mentioned many times. He had genuine concerns that the U.S. would break up the British Empire. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he demanded the veto in order to prevent that. But the veto was also important to Frank. I mean, the, the main reason that the U.S. didn't join the League of Nations in the first place is because they didn't want it telling them what they could and couldn't do. Absolutely. And they had the same concern. A lot of Americans, the American elite, had the same concerns about the United Nations. And it's the, still the, the same issue that probably Trump has with it today. And I hear a lot of it, a lot of, a lot of conservatives in the U.S. It's you know, one of the reasons why a lot of Brits wanted to Brexit, because mm-hmm. they didn't like the EU being able to tell them what they could and couldn't do on certain issues. And it's the same problem that Americans had then and have now, some Americans, with the UN. Um, so the But the veto system meant it's okay. It wasn't as big of a, a, a threat. The, the General Assembly could say whatever it wanted. If they passed a, a recommendation through to the Security Council, say, you know what, America should get the fuck out of Hawaii. Or as was the actual case that Roosevelt himself was concerned about, it looked like there was going to be a battle between the U.S. and Mexico over oil interests around the border. Oh. And he was concerned that the U.N. <laughs> would weigh in on that in Mexico's favor. But once they had a veto, it like, doesn't matter. Yeah, we'll just yeah. veto it. We can veto anything. And I, and I think I just want to say, I, uh, I think we said this on previous shows, that um, FDR was willing to give Stalin um, a lot of what he wanted to get him to come in to help defeat uh, Japan. And one of those things obviously was making sure that Stalin, uh, Stalin's idea of having the veto or whoever's idea it was originally to make sure that was put in there. So everybody gets something they want. They can protect their interests and the America gets the might of the Soviet union to help them finish off Japan. So that war doesn't have to take any longer than it possibly needs to. Exactly. And and the veto system obviously has been used extensively since the creation of the UN. Um, no, it doesn't sound right. right. Throughout, I don't, right no, because throughout the Cold War. Peace, love, harmony <laughs> and the Beatles. Uh, who, who, who would veto? Come on. Vito Corleone, he would veto. <laughs> uh, uh, I might name I you. I this thing for you on the day of my daughter's wedding. I might name you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I never thought you were bad conciliary, Tom. I always thought Centeno was a bad Don. Rest in peace. But I never thought you were a bad conciliary. But listen to Michael. He has all my 
trust on this, and uh, I hope you'll be a friend to him. And, uh, well done. Well if done. If my son, if something, if some tragic accident should happen to my son, I will hold the people around this table responsible. And then I will not, then I will not be a friend. Oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry, that, anyway. That scared the shit out of me. It, between 1945 and 2014, the U.S. used the veto 77 times. What? Russia, Russia slash the USSR combined used it 79 times. China, 10 times. The U.K., 32 times. And France, 18 times. Um, the USSR vetoed resolutions on... Uh, their assistance, in inverted commas, to Hungary following the 1956 revolt, its 1968 invasion of Czechoslovakia, its 1989 invasion of Afghanistan. Mm. The US, of course, also blocked resolutions on its activities in support of the Contra rebels in Nicaragua, which right. the International Court of Justice found illegal in 1986. Britain uh, has used its veto most often over South Africa and uh, yeah. southern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, uh, supporting the apartheid government. Good on you, Britain. Very That fucking proud moment for you, <laughs> using your veto to support the apartheid government. Jeez. Um, the UK, you know, the General Assembly at the time was obviously quite hot about the issue of apartheid and racism generally, and the UK was like, hey, we like it. Shut up. Yeah, that's our thing. It's kind of our thing. Yeah, we, we like apartheid. It's good. They also uh, used it to block resolutions on the independence of Namibia. Now, the biggest, single biggest issue that vetoes have been used on is what? Guess, if you can. Um, resources, economics? No, the single biggest geopolitical issue that the veto's been oh, used um, on. The Middle East? Yeah, part of it in particular, Israel. And Palestine. Uh, right, right, right. The U.S. has consistently used its veto to protect Israel against Security Council measures designed to end the occupation of Gaza and, and the Israeli treatment of the Palestinians. I can, again, I can hear Barry Morris over <laughs> there in uh, Israel fuming. It's, don't bother, Barry. Don't even fucking bother sending me messages. We'll deal with it when we get to Israel. Did you hear? Uh, I just, I'm sorry. Mm, just uh, this in mm, the news. Um, Obama's mm. last couple hours. He did. I can't. He did whatever presidents have to do to organize to send 221 million dollars to Israel that Trump has put on hold. Have you heard about that? Trump has organized to send it, and now he's put it on hold. What? No, no. Obama has organized uh, to send. Israel, $221 million. Obama. And Obama, Obama how did has, he do that? He, he, it, He's it some, not even president. No, he did it his last day, the last couple of hours oh. in office. Or he, he got the process going, and then Trump has put it on hold. That's what I read today. But it just Obama, came out. You should Obama. You should the other did. way around? No, no, it was Obama. Trump's put support for Israel on hold? He's, he put the uh, $221 on hold. Hmm. He wants oh, to review cool. it. That's surprising, but yeah. good. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll get to a shit. We'll, we'll do Israel in detail when we get to there, man, but not right now. Not right now. Sorry, um, sorry, sorry. But yes, the U.S. has used their veto uh, uh, to, to prevent the Security Council from taking action against Israel. Um, now, since the end of the Cold War, the vetoes have been used much less frequently. The U.K. and France last exercised their veto in 1989 over Panama. Wow. So the U.S., since the Cold War, the U.S. is the most frequent user of the veto. They've used it 16 times between 1990 and 2016, 14 mm. of which were over Israel. Oh, my God. The Russian Federation has used it 15 times in that same period, seven of which have been issued jointly with China, and they're mostly to do with Syria and the Ukraine, not surprisingly. Mm. Right. And China has also used its veto along with Russia to block a resolution condemning uh, political repression, repression in Myanmar. I can see that. Um, so the Security Council is obviously broken. And yeah. um, interestingly, since the whole Syrian civil war and the deadlock over that, the inability of the Security Council to do anything, 
um, there's been a proposed code of conduct, the, la- the latest in a series of proposals to implement a code of conduct for the P5. Um, this one that they're trying to get off the ground now says that the permanent members would have to pledge not to use their veto in times of humanitarian crisis, mm-hmm. especially where atrocity crimes are an issue. You wouldn't think that that would be necessary, but alas, it is. Yeah, it is. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, constantly. Um, But, you know, the P5 are um, vetoing the changes to the veto at this point. (laughs) Shit. Uh, We're all screwed. We're all screwed. In in 2015, the UN General Assembly um, accepted a code of conduct that says that any member of the P5 that uses their veto should have to explain why they used it. Because up until now, they don't have to. They go, no, nah, veto, why? Yeah. I'd have to tell you, you're not my dad. Well, um, in this era of post-truth, does that really matter now? Yeah, probably not. Yeah. But uh, to, to the best of my knowledge, these um, code of conduct things have, have gone nowhere. Yeah. So that's uh, the beginning of the discussion of the coal of the United of the United Nations. <laughs> I've got more to talk about the creation of the United Nations, but we're over a time. We're going to have to leave that to episode thirty-four. Hey, one one last review, Ray, from cool. the United States from Shit Kicker, but it's clever. It's pronounced. It's spelled C S C H I T. Uh, he or she writes, the always entertaining podcast duo of Ray Harris and Cam Riley have managed to do it again in their last history podcast, dealing with the now more than ever relevant 20th century struggle for dominance between the good old USA and the crafty commies. The podcast vets never failed to deliver a master's level discussion of the topic while keeping things just as light and comical as the previous Caesar and Alexander shows fair and balanced. That's us. With tons of laughs to boot. There is just no going wrong with these and especially this podcast. Thank you, shit kicker. Send us an email. Email at thecobalt.com with an address and then Ray will forget to send you a gift. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so um, keep an eye out on our Facebook, Cold War Facebook page for details of the live show if I haven't done it already by the time you listen to this. And we'll be back with episode 30 before... 34 before you can say Panama this is Cayman Ray out <laughs> 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 <laughs>